Do you like aliens, UFOs, cryptids, and the supernatural? What about self-defecating humor? Uh, actually, it's self-deprecating humor. Well, you may both be right. Alien Theorist Theorizing is a comedy podcast that examines cases like Roswell, Bigfoot, or the Atacama Alien. If any of these topics pique your interest, subscribe to Alien Theorist Theorizing free anywhere you find podcasts or go to alientheorists.com. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, we're excited to welcome my friend Garrett Graff to the show. Journalist, historian, currently the director of the Aspen Institute Cybersecurity Initiatives. His new book, and I highly recommend it, Watergate, A New History, is out now. Garrett, welcome. Joe, it's great to be here. So, uh, Garrett, well, two things. First of all, we're having some construction work done in there or some kind of pounding work anyway going on in my house. So for all you listeners, you're probably going to hear some of that. But the one thing I wanted to uh, make sure uh, that I talked about was us having a positive experience. For those of you who don't know, Look, I, I consider Garrett Graff like an amazing writer. I mean, book after book uh, and the stories that he's written have just been absolutely amazing. And, and uh, I can't say enough about uh, you picking up uh, his, his book on Watergate. There's others, uh, that, and we'll put them in our show notes. But back in the day in, uh, in 2003 in the Dean campaign, um, he was writing press releases for me, and they, it wasn't the greatest experience in the world because my failure to recognize his visionary writing skills uh, usually revolted in me, resulted in me crumpling uh, uh, the speech he had just handed me or the press release he had just handed me and throwing it back at him to the point where when I left the campaign in the, uh, the documentary, True Believer, uh, he comments as I'm walking off into the sunset that uh, he he can't recall a, a, a ever having a positive experience with me. Since then, we've had several, uh, and I can't uh, tell you how, how it may sound weird, but how proud I am of 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 you and, and and what you've been doing. And and this book on Watergate is fascinating to me, Garrett, because it it you know the Washington Post um, talked about it. Uh, you know, this, the Post had a lot to do with the Watergate story. They talked about it being your book being a, a more human story of Watergate. And I, I, I wanted to get your perspective on that. Are, there is there a figure um, or somebody uh, in the scandal that that may not be a household name that you that you found you know that that sort of hit you uh, as part of this human story? Yeah. So. First of all, Joe, you're not giving yourself full credit. Let me give uh, a little bit more context about <laughs> your uh, quote there. Yes, uh, Joe, in his unique management style on the Dean campaign, <laughs> oh, really? uh, would crumple up and throw out the door of his office the speeches uh, and press releases that he didn't particularly like, which, by the way, were all of them. Uh, and uh, and in the CNN documentary about the campaign at the end of the campaign, I am on camera um, 
several drinks in, I should add, which is not what you should be allowing yourself to be filmed by a documentary film crew from CNN, uh, saying that just what an utter inspiration working for Joe Trippi was and how the man believes so deeply in American democracy. And I believe that what my quote was, was, I would follow him off a cliff, even though I've never once had a positive interaction with him. <laughs> And that, uh, that, you know, Joe, uh, Joe and I have gone on, uh, to a great 20 year friendship, uh, since then. Um, but man, th those were, uh, some, <laughs> some long months, uh, and, and amazing, amazing days. Yes. So, uh, um, appreciate it. So this Watergate book really grew out of my work over the last couple of years covering the, Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, the Trump years, and trying to think about what was different the last time our country wrestled with these questions. Um, and how did we answer them the last time Washington confronted a criminal and corrupt president? And what I found, Joe, is exactly sort of what you you talked about in that Washington Post review, which was that we really don't remember what the Watergate story really was, and that what we shorthand as this burglary on the night of June 17th, 1972, is this much weirder and zanier story that really... Uh, it isn't just a single event that Watergate isn't the burglary. It's this mindset, this criminal, dark, paranoid mindset that Richard Nixon brings to the presidency and that unfurls across really a dozen different distinct but interrelated scandals, um, some of which... It, had they existed in a vacuum, would have been some of the biggest scandals in modern American political history. I mean, the the resignation of Spiro Agnew, the Saturday Night Massacre, mm -hmm. the the Chenault affair, which is uh, which I sort of get into in the book in in some depth because it it's this event that we didn't even really understand until the last decade how it was related to. Watergate at all. And it turns out that it is some of the most credible or serious allegations of outright treason against any political figure in American politics in the 20th century. When Richard Nixon, in the midst of the 68 campaign, when he was running for president, actually worked with the South Vietnamese government to stall the Paris peace talks that we're trying to bring the Vietnam War to a close and where Richard Nixon kept the war in Vietnam going, uh, kept the deaths uh, going of American servicemen in the jungles of Vietnam for his own political benefit. And that this becomes in many ways the original sin that you see unfold throughout um, the rest of Nixon's administration as sort of this mindset um poisons the Nixon administration uh, uh, throughout his six years in office. So, Gary, what, you you focused more on what was already in the record for your research on this instead of doing, you know, rev, uh, you know, interviews with pe a lot of people who were still alive. Is it, 
why why did you you, you go that route or or did did it lead you to where you thought you were going to go i guess Watergate is a story that has been sliced and diced in a thousand different ways in a hundred different books over uh, the last 50 years. But that it's a story that most Americans really don't understand what transpired, who was involved, and that the events that we have learned in the last couple of decades actually dramatically changed the story as we understand it, um, you know, that I'm, uh, you know, I'm a child of the 1980s. I grew up, you know, as an aspiring journalist in the wake of All the President's Men with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. you know, one of the greatest political movies of all time. And you have Deep Throat, the famous anonymous source at the heart of Watergate, you know, played by Hal Holbrook in the uh, parking garage, you know, telling Bob Woodward, follow the money, a quote, by the way, that D- Deep Throat never actually said <laughs> that was entirely screenwriter license. And we've sort of long believed that Deep Throat was this, you know, democracy saving, you know, voice of conscience inside the Nixon administration. Um, And what we've actually learned um, only in 2005 was that it was FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt and that Mark Felt didn't actually care about sinking Nixon at all, didn't really particularly care about democracy. He was pissed off that Nixon hadn't named him FBI Director. And so all of his leaks to Bob Woodward were actually him trying to sink FBI director Pat Gray and get Pat Gray's job. And that what we long believed was like, you know, this democracy saving voice of conscience was actually just like brutal backstabbing, knife fighting, bureaucracy, succession politics. Um, And by the way, uh, what we learn uh, is that Deep Throat didn't even start leaking to Bob Woodward, that actually he started leaking in the summer of 72 to the Crosstown Washington Daily News, which happens to coincidentally go out of business in July 1972, just a couple of weeks after the burglary. And it's only after that that he really begins to leak in earnest to Bob Woodward. And so there's sort of a fascinating historical question wrapped up in all of this, which is if Woodward, uh, if the, if the um, Daily News hadn't gone out of business, would history have even ever known the names Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein? And maybe this one paper would still be around and the other one would be would be gone. Garrett, uh, how you you mentioned in in you mentioned that it might not have ever happened almost. How close were we to to not really ever finding out? I, I obviously there's a bunch of unanswered questions, but how close were we to to not knowing what we do know? Yeah, this to me was one of the most fascinating pieces of this because I think that there's such a sense in our pop culture and and you know basically the historical determinism of the way that we tell these stories that there was a straight line from Watergate to Nixon's resignation. But what you realize is how close we actually came to the cover-up working. I mean, there are at least a half dozen moments between June 1972 
and March 1973, when the scandal finally breaks wide open and develops its own momentum, where Nixon almost got away with it all, that he that the cover up almost held and that there are these like weird little moments along the way where, you know, if Nixon's team had been just a little bit more competent, I mean, there are these couple of moments where they make these, they're paying hush money to the burglars in the wake of the burglary. And there are these couple of like weird moments where they just decide to like, for some reason, not to pay the full hush money. You know, they pay like 80% of the hush money rather than 100% and eventually piss off the burglars enough that the burglars flip and begin cooperating with prosecutors. And you just, you know, if they just like paid the last 10 or $20,000 in hush money, you know, the, the whole thing might have held. So the, the, this brings up, cause there, I think there are similar fears now about January 6th and, you know, cover up and whether, you know, think of a president doing everything he can to kick up dirt, obscure, cover up his, you know, on this scale. Um, you know, it, are there parallels that you see that, you know, stemming out of what you learned in writing the book that you're you're seeing today? Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. And one of the things that I think really stands out in the difference between then and now Um is I, I think in many ways, Watergate is the most interesting story ever told about how power works in Washington, you know, how the checks and balances of American democracy come together in, in and confront a criminal and corrupt president. And how in order for that to work, all of the institutions of American government need to come together. Uh, um, you know, it, this is the story of how Article One, Article Two, Article Three of the Constitution, how the Bill of Rights all intersect to create the system of checks and balances, bring together and empower the press, the FBI, the Justice Department, the House, the Senate, the District Court, the Appeals Court, the Supreme Court uh, to each play their own unique role in forcing Nixon from office. And that it's something that none of them could do on their own. All of them have a role that they end up needing to play. But in Watergate, they all do it. And one of the things that I think really stands out to me in, and you, I think, Joe, as a great student of American politics and American history will, will, will recognize this, what you see in Watergate is members of Congress acting as members of Congress first. That right. They see themselves as a co-equal branch, that they have, you know, prerogatives as the legislative branch and a role in keeping in check the executive branch, that they have to play above and beyond that of, of, of their own political party. And so they are members of Congress first and Republicans second. And what I think we have seen in the last, you know, five years, you know, arguably longer, but certainly during the first impeachment and the second impeachment is Republicans in Congress acting as Republicans first 
and members of Congress second, that they sort of see their role as backing up their party before it is backing up their country. And how do you, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's clear. And, and, and I think uh, uh, maybe they, that's how they, you know, they do get away with this uh, uh, because you don't have everybody uh, doing what needs to be done for the country and, and putting the, the, the party uh, stuff aside. But also we're, what's different about the press and, and their role in all of this uh, from Watergate to, to today? I mean, obviously a lot's changed, the fragmentation, everything else, but how's that in, changed or, or made a different impact or, or, or worse? No, you know, not, not enough focus on, on what's happening. Yeah, I think to me, there's one very simple answer to your question, which is Fox News, that there is a right wing media ecosystem that gives cover to Republican officials that didn't exist in Watergate. And and I think that there is a very open question of if a similar media ecosystem existed amid the era of Watergate, whether you would have ever seen the Republican Party members of the House and Senate feel like they had the ability to act as members of Congress first and Republicans second. You know, it, it is hard to imagine, you know, looking at our current moment, you know, the idea that like the executive branch led a literal assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th uh, to stop Congress from doing the job of Congress and that members of Congress uh, of of the president's party uh, are unwilling to condemn that and that the members of Congress who did make the decision to condemn that, your, you know, Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's, uh, are you know basically excommunicated from the party because of it? Yeah, they're being purged or punished and kicked out. Yeah, it's it's uh and and that even those are are you know a handful. You know you know five. You know you, you can count them on one maybe two hands. Uh, the rest have all you know lockstep uh, uh, promoted the lie. Uh, and done nothing, uh, you know, and and voted con- constantly to either stop investigating, don't investigate, uh, or you know, and and, and vote against uh, any procedure that would open up, uh, uh, you know, open up more evidence. So, what? But but it, in that, you know, thinking about that, how do you see this playing out? I mean, do you think that? Ju- I mean, I know none of us know what the Justice Department's doing, um, but do you see any? you know, any way that this gets gets resolved with some accountability, given the weakness that, uh, but they're both the different, you know, the way Fox News is and the way the Republican Party, for the most part, is act. And very few of them are, are acting responsibly. And we need everybody to do what, you know, to, to defend the democracy and our, and our uh, you know, and, and, and hold people accountable. Do you see any likelihood of that? Yeah, so I think to me, what really stands out is that whether or not the Justice Department is able to establish 
criminal liability of senior Republican officials and, you know, up to and including the president himself. Uh, the Congressional Committee, the January 6th Committee, has the ability uh, to, I hope, assign moral responsibility. And that is one of the things that Congress can do that the Justice Department can't. And of course, that's one of the major frustrations of the Mueller um, investigation, right? Is that the Mueller investigation, because of Justice Department rules, felt it had to stop short of directly accusing the president of a crime. Uh, even though there were clearly lots of uh, moments when the president committed the uh, you know, overt acts and intent uh, of uh, of specific criminal acts like obstruction of justice. Um, Congress has a slightly different role, and it's actually a tension that you did see play out in Watergate, which is when Archibald Cox comes in as the special prosecutor in the spring of 73, he tried to get Sam Irvin's Senate Watergate committee to stop its hearings. And he said, you know, don't worry, the Justice Department has this, like, we're on top of this case now. And uh, Sam Irvin said, actually, that's not, that's not the only thing we care about, that Congress has a role uh, to explain to the American people what actually took place here. And, and I think that our hopes for the spring and summer as these one-sixth committee hearings should get going is that we actually see Congress play that explanatory role and actually tell the story of water, uh, tell the story of January 6th in a way that the American people will understand Donald Trump's moral responsibility for it, whether or not he actually has a specific criminal uh, responsibility for it. Right. And that, you know, that takes us back to the impeachment of, I mean, we're, you know, you wonder if that, it's so distant from what's going on today in Ukraine, but the 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 literally, you know, I've got a favor though that that perfect call that you know that 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 sort of you know launched that 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 impeachment, that narrative I think isn't being cleared. In other words, there's a lot of it, what you're talking about, sort of Congress and explaining things and sort of laying it out, never really happened and. Clearly not in a way now that um, that that it's you know that there's a connection between what Trump did back then and what he was doing with Putin and and this invasion um, and I and I know you've been you've written a lot about about all of this I just wanted to to sort of segue over to one currently what do you see um, uh, with what's happening uh, in, in this is uh, where obviously I'm spending a lot of my time now in my uh, writing for Wired and other publications. I've been following the Russia story, um, really going back to uh, the late 2000s um, when I was writing about the FBI and was uh, in Budapest, Hungary, where the FBI uh, was running at the time, their most forward Russian organized crime task force and, and talking with the agents and covering their efforts to try to begin to bring some of these oligarchs to justice. 
um, you know, a long time before Ukraine became the, the seemingly dominant corrupting threat of American politics. I mean, the, it, it's important. And, and Joe, you, you, uh, you know, understand this and know this as a, you know, globetrotting political consultant as well. But, you know, it's not a coincidence that Paul Manafort no. <laughs> ends up being so tightly tied to corrupt Ukrainian elements uh, and that Ukraine becomes the hub of the that perfect telephone call and the first impeachment. And now Vladimir Putin is, you know, have a, has an all out ground war in Europe uh, over Ukraine. I mean, this is right. You got to remember the the uh, Republican platform change to uh, two that happened uh, under Manafort. Uh, it, it all is linked. There's no, it's not, not accidental at all. It's all, it's all part of an ongoing conspiracy and threat to the, our country, I think, our democracy, as well as obviously the authoritarian uh, forces that are growing, you know, across the, the, you know, flowing into Ukraine and other places. What do you think about where the, where that war stands today? Uh, uh, or, you know, what should we be focusing on as we, so I think it's one of the most surprising aspects of the last couple of weeks for you know virtually everyone is how poorly the Russian military has performed. Um, you know it is uh, you know as we're talking here in early April, you know the Russian military is effectively in full retreat um, after you know just shy of you know six eight weeks worth of combat uh, when it has been. It has suffered really astronomical uh, and, and catastrophic losses to that have rendered some of its frontline units combat ineffective. And that one of the challenges of the Russian military is it, uh, it, it has a lot of people and a lot of equipment, but we've already seen it throw a lot of its best troops into this fight unsuccessfully. Um, and that this is not necessarily a fighting force that is going to get better with time. And that it, it, I think in many ways, um, and, and I wrote this for Wired um, a couple of weeks ago, the question for Vladimir Putin now is how he wants to lose the war in Ukraine and how great of a cost to his own uh, military uh, and prestige and how great of a cost he wants to inflict on Ukraine uh, as he actually loses the war. Part, I think, of the challenge is uh, I don't think anyone really sees good off-ramps yet. Um, that in, in many ways the Ukrainians have done so well that they are not going to necessarily easily settle for things that, you know, quote unquote, uh, would have seemed like victories a couple of weeks ago, you know, uh, only losing the Eastern uh, regions of Ukraine or only losing the Donbass or, uh, you know, giving up Crimea permanently. And that I think that there is a lot of domestic pressure uh, for Zelensky 
to fully expel the Russian invaders from Ukrainian territory. Um, and the challenge there, of course, is that Vladimir Putin has a lot of his own domestic political considerations to bring to bear and that he's not necessarily uh, going to want to back down easily, yet also uh, is going to be pretty hard pressed to escalate the war. I mean, he can't, you know, it, it's notable that Putin has still never talked about this as an actual war. He's still talking about it as a special military operation because he doesn't want to bear the domestic political cost of bringing his own country to a full wartime mobilization. And that this is going to remain a really, really difficult situation, in part because, you know, let's say he gets the eastern chunk of Ukraine and tries to occupy it, it's going to come at an enormous ongoing cost. Um, you know, the they're going to be, you know, Ukrainian special forces and javelin missiles continuing to pick off his troops, you know, for years if they continue to try to uh, uh, hold on to uh, any of this seized territory. Yeah, and I, I I agree with you. I I don't see how Zelensky just sort of, you know, says, oh yeah, you can take this or that and keep. I I, I mean, I, first of all, I I was on the ground. Uh, Alex and I were for. Uh, uh, months, I think it was around 2018 uh, in Ukraine, and the fervor uh, among people on the street against had been growing since 2014, and you could just it was it was fierce against uh, Putin and Russia, uh, even among Russian speakers, a lot of them. And uh, when this all broke out, or was about to, I think it was about to break break out. I I I, I tweeted. That you know, Putin has no idea how how hard the Ukrainian people will fight to to just stop any chance that he would, be, yeah, that they would have to live under his control. I, and that that was like years ago, you know, two, four years ago, I think. So it and with this, it's just absolutely increased. I don't think there's any way domestically uh, the people of Ukraine will want to do anything other than do exactly what you're saying, javelin, you know, however long it takes, you're leaving. Um, and so uh, I, I agree. I don't see, um, uh, I guess, the, the, is, is Western will there to keep it going that long? I mean, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of people now talking about, you know, on both sides. I mean, uh, why haven't we, you know, how close are we to World War Three? Uh, and and why haven't you risked it? <laughs> there's plenty of the, of those people, uh, and then there's plenty of people too, though, that are doing. You know, the longer we help pro prolong it, the more harm it does to Ukraine. I I think both of those arguments are 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 you know miss a lot of nuance of this situation and what and and the realities on the ground. Um, what do you, where where do you sort of line up on terms of what you think? Particularly, the thing I'm interested in is, again, we are sort of in an economic war too. I mean, the, the, the you know, the the more gas prices go up, I mean, the pressure on politicians in democracies is likely to rise over time. The more this is prolonged and prices are high and all those things, uh, with no sense of sacrifice, you know, the, the and I don't know, maybe that's changing now as people see. 
you, you know, the, the, the horrendous, you know, war crimes that have been done about why we need to stay in the fight. But I do question whether democracies have the willpower, I mean, at, at the citizen level to deal with the pain in a different way that Putin doesn't, you know, has a much better, easier path on that front. Yes, there will be people protesting and yes, they'll be in pain, but um, we don't send armies into the street to put our protesters down. Yeah, I, I do think, though, part of the Western challenge, and this is where I think Biden has actually done a pretty good job so far, is he needs to, it's important for the West to put as much pressure on Putin and the Russian regime as it can without necessarily backing Putin into a corner from which he doesn't feel like he can escape. I mean, this is someone right. who has, you know, he he is a very astute study of modern geopolitics. And he has watched America depose and execute Saddam Hussein. And he has watched, uh, you know, the, the West and America depose and execute Muammar Gaddafi um, during his own reign as, you know, effectively dictator of Russia. And if you talk to people who know Putin, the execution of Gaddafi in a ditch was a real turning point for Putin, uh, you know, mentally and politically about loosening his own control over the Russian system. And he does not want to be executed in a ditch amid a political uprising uh, or, you know, Western-backed coup. And, you know, we have a real vested interest in not making Putin feel like he is about to be deposed and has nothing left to lose. Um, at the same time, I think you're right, Joe, to be asking how long the West can keep up some of the pressure. And, and I'd be curious a little bit to ask you, since, you know, you really came of age in politics the last time inflation was a really key kitchen table issue in America. Um, it, it, I, I wonder if you, uh, you know, what sort of insights you have or, or sort of your sense of, you know, how disruptive a, a domestic political force for the U.S. will inflation end up being, you know, this year or in 2024? Well, I, I go back to what you said about Watergate. Um, that uh, I think the American people have the will if their institutions and leaders are it together. Uh, again, go World War II. I mean, we've had these crises. We have obviously we've got the COVID crisis. We've got uh, this 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 invasion. Um, the 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 thing. So in other words, yes, I, this is different than you know the inflation. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, whip inflation now for Ford coming out of the Nixon stuff and uh, and, and Carter. Uh, th this is do have the American people shown a lot of will to, to take on um, challenges, uh, take on, um, you, you know, economic pain. 
when it, you know, women going in, you know, going into the factories to so that men could go to world war in uh, World War Two. Um, I mean, just different things, times in our, our past. But at each of those, all of our institutions and our leaders were all together. Right. It, it, you know, we, we are they weren't looking for ways to divide uh, or, or to attack uh, what was happening and blame it on their president or the other party. Uh, and so it almost goes to the same point you were making about the situation we're in today with Trump. Uh, the difference is Fox News. The difference is a party that will, it has, inflation has nothing to do with COVID. It has nothing to do with you sacrificing or or, or, or with uh, Germans uh, agreeing to, to uh, uh, stop the Nord Stream pipeline and take on the, the economic difficulty for their people it has nothing to do with all that. It's all Joe Biden, right? I mean, that's what. I'm, so I, I think it, it's an interesting. I, I, you know, I'd like to believe that through all this, people will recognize the reality of we have lived through probably the most disruptive two and a half years in the in our lifetimes. Uh, uh, most of us who weren't around for World War II or any of those those big, uh, you know, bigger events early in, in the in the country's history, that that there's been calm, steady leadership that's been and thank God for it. Uh, that's been uh, in you know in in the White House with Joe Biden, and that it's exactly the kind of leadership we need we need right now. Uh, while um, the outrage machine blames every single thing, every gas price increase, anything on uh, on him and the administration and Democrats. That's not normally what happens in any other national in, endeavor um, of this. You know, when the world is facing this kind of a crisis, uh, where you really do have to a president who has both got to prosecute this in every way he can to help Ukraine at the same time, do everything he can to not blunder into World War III or, or you know, or escalate to something along those lines. He's done a, a, an incredible job. And I think that's, that's, I mean, I don't have an answer for you, but that's what I'm, my worry is it's the same exact uh, reasons we're not sure about, um, you know, whether Trump gets away with this or not, that, you know, Fox News is there. There's a party that has gone off the rails that puts is not putting country in front of party. They're doing the absolute opposite. And that's not where we need to be if we're going to urge Americans um, to, you know, to stay, you know, to stay on, you know, to, to stay with the Ukrainian people. And yes, they're look at what they're going through. We're going to we're going to go through some rough stuff, too. But uh, we're we've got the will and we'll we'll uh, fight to keep things as calm as possible. That's not Trump. That's not the Republican Party right now. And so I don't know how to sustain that. Um, the one thing I do want to do before you leave, I just a quick kind of question about on the cyber front. I mean, you've asked, you know, Aspen had a panel uh, before the invasion where uh, you had several cybersecurity experts. How, how are you seeing that? Um, and is that something that you not, we're prepared for? Can we learn anything uh, about cyber de defense uh, uh, here, at, here at home 
I, I just get, get your take on a lot of people are wondering what happens if if that's where Putin goes. Uh, what's the reality of it? The underperformance of Russia's cyber assets is, you know, in many ways, just as surprising as the underperformance of the rest of the Russian military. Uh, almost anyone had, uh, who knows this world had been expecting that there would be large-scale, widespread cyber attacks that would lay the groundwork for Russia's invasion. Uh, and we saw some of that. And, and I think it is important to note that there have been some actually very meaningful uh, attacks or attempted attacks, including against some of the satellite communication networks that Ukraine uh, and its military rely upon, uh, Viasat, um, as well as some efforts by U.S. governments, including one uh, in, in early April by the Justice Department to try to uh, uh, disrupt uh, some Russian activity here in the United States. So there, there's a, there is more going on. And the fact that we haven't seen it actually happen isn't necessarily um, something that uh, means that it's uh, Russia hasn't tried. Um, but I think one, one very simple answer for it is that uh, Russia didn't initially feel the need for it, that they knew that they were going to pound these, uh, you know, this infrastructure with literal bombs, and that that's easier to do than it is to set up a, you know, set up a highly advanced uh, cyber attack on some of those facilities. Um, so I don't think we really know. Uh, but I think it could be as simple as Russia just turns out not to be as good at any of this as we thought that they were. I mean, that could be a lot of it. I mean, one of the questions we've been getting is, and I, Joe got to this earlier, Garrett, and then we, we can wrap because we're just about out of time. But how far do you think Putin is willing to take the the cyber escalation of this war? And not just in Ukraine, but but globally. And how prepared are we to deal with it? We don't know how much Putin is willing to escalate this war. And that is, that is what is keeping, you know, the U.S. on the sidelines, the West on the sidelines, NATO on the sidelines of a lot of uh, bringing more direct military interventions against Russia. Um, and uh, that is something that I think a lot of people underestimate about the Cold War was how hard both the U.S. and the Soviet Union worked to keep the Cold War cold um, and to avoid direct confrontations that could actually lead to an outright attack um, uh, you know, between the two superpowers. And I think that we are very much in that position right now where we worry that we, uh, you know, don't want to accidentally uh, bring Russia into a direct confrontation with the United States. Thanks for that, Garrett. And we are getting just about close to time here. So, uh, Joe, anything else you wanted to add? No, I just can't uh, tell you how, uh, how much, uh, Garrett, I appreciate you coming on and how uh, not just this, but you should, we're going to put a list of the books that uh, Garrett has written recently in our show notes because uh, on Mueller, uh, on 9-11, uh, Last Plane in the Sky, it just incredibly uh, 
uh, great reads that are so insightful. I hope you picked up that, that picked that up from this interview. Uh, you can find his new book, Watergate, A New History in Stores Now. Follow Garrett on Twitter at Vermont GMG, and we'll include links in the show notes. We'll be back next week. And of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to that trippy show at gmail.com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. See you next week. Thanks.